You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. David Allinger, good to see you. Good to see you, Dan. So uh, welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience, meaningoflife.tv, bloggingheads.tv, available on uh, streaming video and audio podcasts. Also now you can see it on YouTube if you want. Um, David Ottlinger, of course, uh, is well-known to blogging heads, meaning life, life TV viewers. Um, writes for the Electric Agora is a, how should we call you? Should we call you a uh, roaming independent intellectual? Is that what we should call you? By all means. It's very romantic. <laughs> um, um, you might find David out of the Agora wandering around, you know, uh, <laughs> having annoying conversations with people. Um, we are here to an interesting sort of set of series of events, first sort of intramural within philosophy and then spilling out, um, to, a, to a, maybe a bit of a broader, uh, conversation in the New York times, uh, a New York times piece. I'm just going to very quickly walk the um, audience through the individual parts of this story, um, about which David then wrote a substantial essay, um, which is then going to sort of constitute the bulk of our conversations about sort of the arguments he makes in the essay and what he thinks, what issues he thinks are raised by this this series of events. So, and please excuse audience, excuse me, because I am going to tabs to look at um, the dates and names of these essays. Um, So, the first thing that started, so everybody by now knows, because I've done several dialogues on it, everybody in the audience knows, there is a sort of a big fight going on inside philosophy, as there is in the culture at large, between um, transgender ID activists on the one side and what are called gender critical feminists on the other. The arguments and fights are, are largely getting all their heat from practical effects on the ground that are going to be determined by the way this argument goes, having to do with things like whether we should continue to maintain sex-segregated bathrooms as opposed to gender-segregated bathrooms, meaning that you go into the bathroom that your anatomy works with as opposed to what you identify with or vice versa. The questions of sex-segregated sports, whether whether women's sports should allow male-bodied people who identify as women to participate. Prisons, I mean, you, you, can, you can imagine all the sectors of sort of life across which this has implications. We sex-segregate intimate spaces as well as other uh, uh, areas um, to, preserve certain, uh, to preserve certain safety issues for women as well as to maintain uh, what we thought when we introduced these sex segregated ideas was a level playing field. Um, so that's, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So a quick note on that, that's going to be important for me. Yeah. Uh, is there's a fight and there's a meta fight. What's the meta? Oh yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the fight isn't there. <laughs> the fight is uh, partly political, partly philosophical, or we're going to be exploring the boundaries thereof. Um, but it's a question of what the sort of metaphysical and political status of transgender people are, and specifically whether they are members of the gender they identify with. It. Right. Um, right. 
And then there's the question over, is that an appropriate debate for academic philosophy, or is that an appropriate thing to debate in even the popular press? Some people are able to uh, say that it's not uh, a proper debate and that people who take the positions deemed wrong should be more or less stripped out of the conversation, which is most of what I'm talking about in in my piece. Right, right. And actually this sort of, you know, so so this this now plays out in terms of the the series of um, events that I'm going to describe. So this has become a big enough issue within philosophy that 12 philosophers saw fit to go into the pages of um, um, Inside Higher Education uh, to basically write a letter that they signed um, saying that philosophers should not be sanctioned over their positions on sex and gender. In other words, arguing, saying, look, we've got to allow gender critical and other people critical of these sort of trans activist ideas um, we've got to allow them to make arguments. Um, and you're absolutely right that many on the, the trans activist side, I'm sure everyone has heard this mantra, trans women are women, trans women are women, not up for debate, not up for debate. Um, um, there, there certainly has been a push to say, look, this, this whole discussion is off the table. We are what we say we are, and you're just going to have to deal. You're just going to have to accept that. And if you don't, we're not going to allow you within polite conversation. We're going to, we're going to basically label you, brand you, publicly shame you, drive you out of the, try to drive you out of the conversation. And obviously the gender critical people are refusing to be driven out. One of the notable signatories of this letter was Peter Singer. And it should be mentioned that Peter Singer is part of a group that's starting a journal, the mm-hmm. journal of dangerous ideas where people are going to be able to publish anonymously precisely in order to prevent uh, trans activists from driving them out and other sort of activists who want to do this sort of thing from trying to drive them out of the conversation since they won't know who they are. Right? So inside the inside higher education piece drops on July 22nd. Following this, um, the trusty and always reliable Justin Weinberg of the Daily News, who as everyone knows is a, close friend of mine, um, uh, um, he hosts uh, a response. Um, but this time, written, signed by anonymous authors. Well, composed and signed by... Composed and signed by anonymous authors. Well, signed by anonymous is a contradiction in terms. Well, but. you're right. Yeah. Well, however you want to put that. Um, um, he posted an essay written by people whose names do not appear on it. Right. Although they're known to him, he bothers to tell us. Why does he bother to tell us that? I, I, I found that very strange. I don't, I, you know, if, if I spent my time trying to figure out why Weinberg does what Weinberg does, um, I'd have even more gray hair in my beard than I do now. Um, so, so, so they write this thing that basically, it's not so much a response to the letter as it is a sort of a, well, we have every right to treat these people this way, the gender-critical feminists, because they're not really doing philosophy. They're activists. Right. And so we're going we're gonna to get down. They're, they're doing activism. We're going to do our activism, and our activism means we're going to try to drive them out of the conversation. Right? 
and then all the usual sort of uh, slanders and slurs and attacks on Kathleen Stock and all the regular cast of characters gets dragged out. Um, a day after, right? So that piece drops on August 6th. A day after, in the APA blog, um, the American Philosophical Association blog, another letter is so, uh, posted, this time signed by 33 people. 33 people belonging who belong to what I, uh, in a recent essay, referred to as the woke triangle, right? So it's mm-hmm. all these, a lot of the same cast of characters that signed the Rebecca Tuvel letter are on there. Um, a lot of the cast of characters that we are, we are now becoming more and more familiar with within philosophy, you seem to always pop up when these issues come to the front. Um, 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 they write this letter um, this was being a direct response to the uh, to the um, uh, IH, IHE piece, and what they essentially say is that well, you know, it's the same warmed over. Um, you know, yes, people should be able to speak and express views, but they shouldn't be allowed to harm people, right? And and of course, gender critical feminism, um, uh, their their writings are accused of causing harm. They also trot out their, their, their we're experts stuff. Um, they say in a note at the end that, you know, they're very disappointed inside higher education because the 12 people who signed the letter are not experts while in this particular area, while the 33 are. And why did you, because they, they tried to send a response and IHE would publish it. They're like, well, you should have published it because we're the experts and we, that sort of thing. Then in the New York Times, the, the New York Times um, on this was August thirteenth, and the Stone, Agnes Callard published a piece entitled "Why Philosophers Shouldn't Sign Petitions," and um, you and I discussed this a little bit off camera, and it does appear that she's not really taking a side in this. Presumably she would object just as much as this of the letter signed by the 33 as to the letter signed by the 12. Um, but what she essentially says is that, look, you know, philosophers should be in the business of making arguments. Um, <laughs> if your argument is good, it doesn't matter who wrote it. And so there's no point in having the signatures. And when you put the signatures, what you're essentially doing is trying to make an argument from authority. You're trying to tell people they should accept what you're saying because look at these fancy people um, right. um, who have signed it. And so that's where we sort of, that's the scope of uh, the series of events. I then wrote this very sort of snarky tart piece called The Woke Triangle, where I primarily was focusing on Weinberg's, what the, the Weinberg piece, uh, or the anonymous piece that Weinberg posted. Um, um, but you then wrote a, a much more, a less, you know, yours was not sort of snarky and humor related. Yours was, you know, sort of a serious effort to confront this. Um, and I thought that it would be a, a nice way to discuss this whole train of events would be just to talk about your essay because your essay is responding to and, and met, uh, pretty much to this series of events. So maybe if you want to add anything to my summary of the train of events, please do. And then also, why don't you go ahead and say what the core elements of your essay uh, are? Yeah. Um, no, I thought that was a fine overview. So, um, uh, I was in my essay trying to focus mainly, um, on the daily news piece, which caused 
I think, quite a sensation in philosophy world. Well, yeah, Justin um, closed comments. So you couldn't comment on the piece. But discussion kind of erupted in philosophy Twitter, and I'm assuming in other places that I don't check out, Um, uh, maybe Facebook and stuff, but certainly philosophy Twitter, Twitter, there was a lot of discussion of it. Um, But yeah, you're right. And um, I'm particularly what I found in really interesting was this kind of notion of activism, um, which is used to critique the original position. But I guess we should start with um, the original position by the 12 leading scholars at uh, inside higher education. And I don't think it'll take much time because it's a fair, it's a very traditional million type argument. Yeah. It's a straightforward um, liberal don't, no platform and censor people. <laughs> well, yeah, well, it's don't platform and censor people because someone may deplatform and censor you because how do you develop a principle which can adequately distinguish between the views which are worthy of censorship and the views that are not worthy of censorship. And um, as it points out quite usefully and quite properly, philosophers make sort of emotionally frustrating, politically uh, relevant and potentially quite incendiary arguments all the time, many of which in retrospect look pretty good or pretty important to other philosophers. Um, You mentioned Peter Singer being a signatory to this piece. Peter Singer has famously, um, you know, endorsed at least under some circumstances, what infanticide, Infanticide, um, active euthanasia, even bestiality. Heavy petting Um, was the name of that article. Heavy petting. Um, um, And so he certainly has been, and I know that he's been no platform by disability groups um, and attacked. Um, But even, you know, you go way back. I mean, think about the abortion debate, right? Right. Or the affirmative action debate. I mean, I edited an entire volume for Stephen Kahn back in the 90s on the affirmative action debate. And there were anti-affirmative action pieces in there that I'm Mm -hmm. sure made people very upset and angry. (laughs) Um, 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 And so this is, this is not new. Right. Right. Um, With the reflection that this is not new, I think, I'll more or less set that aside because we have, uh, for one thing, we discussed liberal principles of free speech in the past. Yes, we have. And for another, I think people are basically familiar with this argument. If you start deplatforming uh, gender critical feminists, it's reasonable to think that other people are going to turn around and use that uh, <clears throat> kind of warrant to start deplatforming and censoring people that they don't like. Right. Um, So that brings us up to uh, the Daily News response piece and the, uh, this weird sort of counter letter, uh, which is at least signed, but in many ways, the most interesting was the Daily News piece, which is written by our three anonymous non-signatories. Um, and it's called Recognizing Gender-Critical Feminism as Anti-Trans Activism. 
And to use the English expression, it does what it says on the tin. It, um, it, uh, it's supposed to, um, the fact that what gender critical feminists are doing is not philosophy and not scholarship. It's actually activism. And then once you see this, you will see that they should not be included as a serious part of this conversation. Um, well, the first thing that one of the first things that I noted about this was that this divide that is seemed to be totally presupposed and unargued for in the piece is this divide between activism and philosophy or scholarship. Um, but first, I think we kind of have to establish what do they mean by activism? Um, and what they mean by activism is stranger than you might at first think. Um, and I think actually, uh, so uh, Jason Brennan, a hot libertarian philosopher, um, well-known guy. When you he, say hot, are you commenting on his sexiness? <laughs> no. Or is uh, that he's currently uh, trending? He's, uh, he's <laughs> well-published. Okay. Uh, that's all I'm interested in. It says as much about me you're as I'm interested in his body. You're interested in his mind, right? <laughs> it's a purely platonic interest. Um, but... Uh, he made some comments, I guess, on Facebook originally, and then they got reproduced in uh, Brian Leiter's blog, which is where I saw them, where I, I he said, you know, these authors ac accuse gender-critical feminists of activism, but then they don't do anything to gather evidence for that claim. Right. I think that's that, that's not quite right. That misses the mark because they are um, – they do support the claim they make. It's just their definitions are so idiosyncratic that the average person, even the average trained philosopher, can miss what they say. Yeah. So what they mean by activism is something a little peculiar. So I'm going to just read one sentence that I think is very important. There, that is the gender-critical feminists, writings and behavior are best understood as aimed at achieving their activist ends such as preventing trans women from using facilities designated for women or making it more difficult for trans women to be legally recognized as women. That's a very key statement. So there be, so what the gender critical uh, philosophers are described as doing is best understood as activism because it's, best understood at achieving their activist ends. And so what they're referring to as the activism of the gender critical feminist isn't anything they're doing sort of extramurally, anything that they're doing, sort of donations they're making, time they're giving, contacts they're making, etc. outside of their research. They're referring to their research right. as the activism itself. Yeah. Yeah, and and the reason it's activist and therefore non philosophical and non scholarly 
is uh, that they're best understood at achieving activist ends. You know, one, one thing just occurred to me, I mean, and I don't remember, um, I mean, I read the piece more than once, but I don't remember exactly whether they say anything about this, but I definitely said, I said to a lot of these lines of my own piece. Um, do they ever comment on the fact that all the trans, the all the trans active identity writers are also trying to achieve activist ends? Never. I mean, the whole that whole literature is is there for the purpose of trans liberation. Right. I don't understand why it almost. I mean, it can't be this simple. I mean, because normally one would expect more than this from you know highly educated people as these people are. It can't be that activism is whatever I don't like, right? <laughs> I mean, it could be, but that would be really disappointing, right? I mean, yeah. uh, but do you think that that's what, what's going on? It's just they're just saying, well, trans activism, I mean, activism is people doing stuff for ends that we don't like and everything else. The stuff, if it's stuff that we liked, it's not activism, then it's serious philosophy. I think it ends up collapsing into that. I'll need us, we'll have to put a pen in that. Yeah. Uh, for the time being, but what they explicitly commit themselves to at first is that if you're doing any research which is specifically aimed at an activist end, which is seems to be any real political effect, then what you're doing is not philosophy or not uh, scholarship. So, so Judith Jarvis Thompson's a defense a defense of abortion. Which was before Roe v. Wade would count as activism on this definition. Well, let's go through. Yeah. All right. So I'm just going to take their sentence and then just switch out some words, see how it hits your gut. All right. Quick, quick gut check here. Um, the classical utilitarian writings and behavior are best understood as aimed at achieving their activist ends such as prison reforming prisons and expanding the franchise. Right. Bentham and Mill. Yeah. Uh, Pro-life philosopher writings are best understood as aimed at achieving activist ends like restricting access to abortion and um, creating a culture in which uh, life is valued. Pro-choice philosopher writings are yeah. best understood at aimed at achieving their activist ends, such as providing uh, access, free access to abortion and to contraception to women across classes and in different demographic groups, etc. So, I mean, I just don't see what social and political philosophy or what moral philosophy you can't immediately plug into this formula and call activist. You could actually do it for like great classics. I mean, John Locke's mm-hmm. second treatise of government. <laughs> Which was created as a political pamphlet during a political crisis. Right. Rousseau's social contract, right? Absolutely. He was <laughs> an active revolutionary. He died in the revolution. You know, uh, <laughs> Uh, anything by any founding father. Right. Uh, right. And remember the dialectical point. The dialectical point is this stuff that we successfully label as activism is justifiably no platform. That's why it's a response to the letter by the 12, right? 
little bit of trust. They don't know platform, and they're saying, oh, you're right, you shouldn't know platform, but only if it's philosophy. If it's activism, then everything's fair game. And so we should know platform by Bentham and Mill and John Locke and all of these people because they yeah. think so, it's a definition of activism, right? So to make that point explicit, you have to look Very at Very nice, this. David. You're absolutely right about this. <laughs> yeah, because they do dance around this point ever so slightly. And I'm, I'm going to um, really try to hold them to their own words here. Now, inevitably, I'm going to have to read their own words a little bit. Yeah, that's fine. Um, but so the very first uh, paragraph refers to the letter that we already discussed at Inside Higher Education in favor of permissive speech standards. A recent letter published at Inside Higher Education argues that we should not censure writings by so-called gender-critical philosophers. We agree with the authors of the letter that philosophy should be a discipline in which sensitive and controversial issues are investigated with patience, care, and insight. So that's immediately interesting, and I didn't even note this in the essay. So there's a letter that says we should not censor writings by gender-critical feminists. We agree with the authors of the letter that philosophy should be a discipline in which sensitive and controversial issues are investigated with patience, care, and insight. So superficial, someone casually reading this would say, we should not censor writings by gender-critical feminists. We agree. That's not what they said. But, then there's the but. <laughs> well, and then we get to the but, which is even further um, eluding, further kind of making their meaning opaque here. But they, what they affirm with the we agree, which is it almost immediately read as affirming the prior proposition that we should not censure <laughs> which is, is a word they introduced into the debate, censure. Yep. Should not censure gender-critical feminists. No, they're actually affirming not that proposition, but the proposition, the banality, frankly, that philosophy should be a discipline in which sensitive right. and controversial issues are investigated with patience, care, and insight. Right. The but is that this isn't philosophy, so we can do whatever we like to it. Yeah, and the next sentence begins, but. But gender-critical writings, which the letter defends, do not advance us toward this ideal. So you should not be censored unless you don't advance us towards this ideal, and gender-critical feminists don't advance us towards this ideal. They use the word censure, all right? I Usually I have to import that word myself to describe what people are trying to do. Yeah. And I think it's legitimate, and I've argued why I think it's legitimate in pieces in the past and in discussions of the past. Here, they use the word themselves, and they're making their intentions really quite clear. Yeah. That they think these should be, and there's a little coyness, which I won't go into later in the essay. It's equally disingenuous. Yeah. Um, and part of another revelation I had we, uh, last night, I sat down and read all these pieces in order and then fell asleep 
Um, it fell you know, asleep immediately after. <laughs> no, no, fell asleep reading about the alt, right? So between all that, I don't know how I didn't have nightmares. But um, a revelation I had is that they, um, the fact that they're making an argument for a kind of social informal censorship is clearly displayed in the fact that they didn't put their names on it. The, the, the original letter for at inside higher education has these people's eminent people's names on it. Yeah. And the reason it has their names on it is they're affirming basic standards that are completely familiar within the discipline. Um, these people, these three anonymous people, but known to Justin Weinberg, are going strongly against those traditional values and scruples of the discipline. And that's why it was dangerous to put their name on it. And when something dangerous comes up, they don't do it. Yeah. So they didn't. So that's prima facie evidence that what they're doing is supporting a form of censorship. So I'm sorry to have to go to those lengths to establish what the authors intend, but I have to with these people because they're deliberately opaque. I mean, there's just no way around it. So should we get to your, your prior question about, are they just um, talking about, so we've made our case that this definition of uh, activism won't do because you could censor anything. Yeah, it includes way too much. Um, um, before we sort of start analysis, do, do, what, do you think that the, what do you think the letter from the 33, the, the APA blog letter from the 33 adds to this? Or do you think it doesn't really add anything? Um, what does it add? Did you yeah, see that as developing the, pro- the issues any further? Or do you think it's basically just they're just coming in to put some name heft behind the anonymous Weinberg drive-by, you know? Um, um, because that's the sort of sense I got. So like, okay, well, these three people, maybe they're graduate students. Who knows? I have some suspicions about who they might be. Um, just given what's been going on in this whole area for the last uh, year or so. Um, and there, but there are sort of these notables on the list of the 33, especially sort of Sally Hasslinger and Rebecca Kukla and others, like I said, who keep, who keep appearing every time one of these, um, toxic spills occurs in philosophy. Um, do you think that they they really just did that just to sort of get the backs of the, um, of the, uh, of the anonymous, uh, uh, Weinberg posters, or or do you think that there's anything new in there? I thought the appeal to expertise was new in an interesting way, right? I mean, in that they're like, well, you shouldn't have even, you shouldn't have even, IHE, you should, you probably shouldn't have even printed that letter from the twelve because they're not experts in gender stuff. Mm-hmm. We are, and here we wrote you what we think about it, and you didn't answer. I almost got a sense of sort of like insulted pride um, um, from this. Um, but I don't know. How do you feel about it? Do you think that, 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 that APA piece adds anything or is it just getting the backs of the anonymous? I'd say mostly the latter. I found it, I mean, it's very short. It's a, like half a page and it, I find it to be, um, 
really terrible. <laughs> it's such an embarrassing document that I actually think it's yeah. sort of interesting that these people were willing to put their names on it. And I think it only goes to sort of show the extent to which they are so ideologically captured in tunnel vision that they can't possibly, they can't see how they look to everyone, right? I mean, they really think that they are so on the side of the angels yeah, that nothing so, is embarrassing, right? So basically the intellectual, the core, the intellectual core, if we can call it that, of the letter is what we've already discussed, which is sort of use of the harm principle. They put a slightly different spin on it. Basically they say, um, consider differences of power and vulnerability in speaking and when our words have the effect of reinforcing structures of oppression. But by reinforcing structures of oppression, they mean doing some, ultimately doing some kind of harm to some vulnerable group. And that's the basic justification. So the intellectual idea is the same. What struck me about this is there's one just incredibly sophistical argument. And then there's another, the rhetorically uh, nauseating move was, and this um, ties in with your uh, uh, your point about a, appeal to expertise. So there's been kind of a thing going around in philosophy world about, and outside of philosophy world sometimes, about the legitimate use and illegitimate use of, oh, well, you haven't read the literature. <laughs> They're always telling you to go read the literature. Whatever you disagree yeah. with them. Yes. Well, I don't have to argue with you. You know, the, the literature has already taken care of that. Um, I think in the, in, the, in the daily news piece, they say that gender critical activists are, are making arguments that were already defeated in the 1980s. Um, uh, no, that was in the daily news piece. Yeah, in the daily but, news piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, the that's become a now. Yeah, the signatories of the APA letter, in addressing fellow scholars in feminism and gender, you know, philosophy of gender, link to Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entries and say, obviously, you guys need to read the basic entries on such subjects as uh, feminist metaphysics and feminist perspectives on sex and gender. That's nauseating. Kathleen Stock and Holly Lawford Smith or whatever, who are, all these people, whether you like them or not, whether you think their arguments are good or bad, they've read the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and a lot more besides. And linking to them with this imputation I just found just made me sick. I mean, it was a really smug move. Let me ask you a question. I'm, this this puzzles me. I'm wondering if, what, what your view of this is. What first? Of, let's let's bracket the question of whether this is ever a repro- appropriate response to tell somebody to go read the literature, mm-hmm. or to hand wave at the literature as if somehow that is a response, right? Right. But so let's bracket that for a minute. Whether that's even appropriate to do at all is once you've done it, right? Mm-hmm. Why do you think it is that they think you haven't read it? In other words, mm-hmm. in other words, maybe you read it and you just think it's shit. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, um, and this may get people who are whose side I am on sort of politically angry. 
but I'm sorry. Um, I've done, I've done real metaphysics, right? There's nothing in feminist metaphysics I cannot understand. Okay. I guarantee you right now. Okay. Um, 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 I'm, I've taught, you know, seminars at the highest levels on, you know, on ontological commitment and on realism and anti-realism and, you know, Quine and Davidson and Putnam. Don't tell me that there is anything appearing in that literature that I couldn't understand half asleep or drunk. All right. It's just not that great of a literature. It's just not that sophisticated of a literature. Um, half of it is weird, bizarre continental stuff. Okay. That, that, that I'm sorry again to my dear friend, Jane Claire Jones, what I've read of it, Butler and the like is just shit. Okay. And so why do you think, is this just sort of a similar sort of thing to the sort of, we're so convinced of the morality of our position that we don't see what we look like to everybody else. Or is there something else going on? Why do you think it is that they sort of assume that you haven't read the literature as opposed to that you've read it and you think it's terrible? You couldn't possibly have understood it and not been convinced by it. But do do you think they think that about anything else? Do they think that about epistemology? Do they think that about, I don't know, you know, theories of, I don't know, um, um, properties and relations? Um, They think about, they think it about other political things, but only a narrow subset of things. I, I mean, I've, boy, I've had some Twitter exchanges recently. Um, So, but my conviction that these people are sort of that, committed and that much true believers is not unempirical let me tell you it's just ironic that those are the people who are attacking the other side for being activists right i mean i just i find that everything they do displays the posture of an activist and not a serious scholar right and then their response to criticism is to accuse the other people of being activists yeah uh, which i just find very odd i mean it, it Surely they must know that people notice, right? On, on your no, uh, on on your on your point about see the literature, because um, they they didn't invent this tactic. Postmodernists, who I, I'm, I've I get a whole video about how allergic I am to postmodernism, but because uh, it's just bad philosophy, yeah, and. <coughs> Beg your pardon. Um, but they always do this. It's always a postmodernist is talking to an analytic philosopher, and you know they say, um, "Here's my postmodern claim." Analytic philosopher, I don't think that's right. Postmodern philosopher, well, you probably didn't understood it since you're an analytic. Under, you're an analytic philosopher, and you only uh, know Frege and Carnap. And they always talk like it's still 1945. <laughs> and like analytic philosophers have never come across Heidegger or Hegel. And, right. You know, I, I find that personally insulting because you know I'm, I'm not a fully fledged philosopher. I'm a fairly junior person, but the two places where I have studied philosophy seriously are um, places that had very serious continental and very serious analytic 
philosophers and the people I spent the most time around were in many cases either continental philosophers or people who had continental interests. I've read some Hegel. Uh, I've read quite a bit of Nietzsche. I, I, you know, I, no, I'm, uh, throw it at me. I'm capable of understanding it, you know, and it's not that the tradition is so foreign to me that I must have gotten it wrong. It's that I didn't like your claim. Yeah. So anyway, that is a rhetorical tactic I'm familiar with and yeah. annoyed by in yeah. other contexts. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let me. So so back. Let's get back on the sort of trade we're on. So I mean, yeah, we still have the New York Times piece to get to. Um, well, yeah. But, but before I, I, that, we're on this business about activism and your thesis about it. Um, so you had asked me a question. Does this whole activism business just collapse into? Um stuff we don't like is activism. The, the standard we've seen so far clearly does not work. Um, and I'd say there's a little more to the argument, but not much, which is the little more to the argument is they go through what gender critical feminists are saying. And they say it's so kind of full of factual inaccuracies and distortions and sort of manipulative, irrational rhetoric. I think they um, use the expression dog whistles. Oh, God. Dog whistles. Yeah. Um, they say in the one point, they said, they say that, the, that the words male and female are dog whistles when uttered by, uttered by gender critical feminists. Right. So basically the whole thing is that gender critical feminists are so the arguments they're making are so slipshod that they cannot be considered reasoned debate at all. And therefore they're just not up to the standard to be included in the conversation. Right. Right. (coughs) I actually think that kind of move is more legitimate than it might seem in some cases and is interesting um actually bob recently did a little thing about flat earthers did you see that yeah yeah where flat earthers the way they're arguing is so tortured and so weird and so the wrong way around that i think the legitimate thing to say about them is to say this is not debate whatever you're trying to engage me in, it's not debate. And therefore I'm not inclined to indulge this. It's, uh, you know, this is not something I have to put up with. And no, you don't get a seat at the local school board uh, for that reason. But look. There probably isn't going to be, though, a general principle that you can articulate that's going to disambiguate those, right? I mean, you know, part of the problem I have with these people is they're, they're, they're behaving in a way that sort of breaks or undermines the sort of, how should I say, informal reasonableness that if it doesn't sort of govern conversations, you really can't have them, right? They're almost kind of, there's a kind of a deadpan credulity that they sort of engage in that I actually think it's really very dangerous what they're doing um, um, because, look, I can't come up with a general principle that's going to always rule out the flat earthers and not the gender critical feminists without having to exercise any judgments, right? That's going to do it mechanically. 
Um, the problem is, is that the way that these people are playing undermines the capacity to make those judgments, right? right. Um, um, yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. I mean, one of the points I make is, um, yes, gender-critical feminists engage in rhetoric. So do all kinds of other philosophers. I mean, how many of the titans of philosophy wrote in extremely rhetorical, florid kinds of ways that were deliberately emotional engaging? I mean, Kierkegaard? Yeah. Um, Second of all, what is rhetoric, and when do we know when someone's engaged in it? Third, is rhetoric always illegitimate? I mean, that's... And when when do you need to have an argument is itself uh, a philosophical question. Right. At some point in ethics, you kind of, uh, as Vic and Shem say, explanations come to an end somewhere. And when you do and don't need an argument is... Um, a huge question. <coughs> I'm so sorry. <coughs> Little as you, you have to survive to the end of the dialogue. I'll, I'll, I will do my best. But I mean, like, I did a whole. I was part of a class once where, for the most of the class, we were reading Tim Scanlon and Christine Korsgaard, and those two authors have a fundamental disagreement about do we try to answer the question philosophically why should we be moral? Christine Korsgaard thinks that's absolutely essential. Scanlon thinks we can't give an answer to that. That's pre-philosophical and you have to have answered that in order to engage in moral philosophy and it's a very deep question within philosophy when those arguments are necessary so the you can't always rule people out uh, because they don't have an argument. Sometimes they're not having an argument is what's most distinctive and important about them. You certainly can't rule them out for engaging in rhetoric for yeah. the you've already listed. So I just don't see any kind of reasonable standard. And the last thing I have to say is just they're the picture they paint of people like Holly Lawford Smith and Kathleen Stock and the, the other people they name is just is clearly overwrought. Uh, it's just not a fair picture. And I have my own problems with those people, and I would not want to defend everything they've ever said or written. But their, their arguments, I mean, I find their arguments much, much better than, say, the average argument for panpsychism. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's, yes. Yes. Yeah. Which is considered as a serious area in philosophy. Yeah. Um, Championed by some ser- you know, major people, David Chalmers, Galen Strawson. I mean, heavy duty people. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I just, I don't buy. Yeah that this is so silly as to be something we can just dismiss out of hand. And I or, so da- or so dangerous. I mean, at one point in my, uh, in my woke triangle piece, I wrote, you know, I described the universe of these, of people like the anonymous authors and the 33 um, as living in a bizarre universe in which middle-aged lesbian professors 
are deemed so hazardous to their colleagues and students that they must be targeted by academic mobs for the purpose of stripping them of their employment. I mean, you can watch video of Kathleen Stock talking, and I'm sorry, I don't believe anyone who tells me that they think that, that they are afraid for their safety. You say that to me, you are just flat out lying, okay? You're just flat out lying. I don't believe you. And I wish more people would just look these people in faces and say, you are a liar. Stop lying to people's faces. Either get serious or expect what's going to come back, right? Because what you're doing now is engaging in just flat out smearing and manipulation. And, and I, I don't feel like enough people in our profession are pushing back hard enough against it. This is outrageous what these people are doing. There's also, um, there's a conversation going on right now. Not at all full defer driven, um, not coming out of academic philosophy, but driven by journalists um, and political activists in, you know, partly in, in response to um, the current terrible situation with Trump being president, et cetera, um, <clears throat> that we must have no restrictions on abortion, uh, even very late in the trimester. Uh, Anna Marie Cox has done a whole uh, uh, uh podcast about that. <clears throat> now, that is going inevitably to kickstart uh, the infanticide debate. Right. Um, there's a, a video online where uh, Michael Tooley and uh, Don Marquis, uh, I hope I have his name right. I'm sorry. Um, well, you, we'll find it later, and we'll link to the video, um, and then we'll, we'll make sure it's... So those two people are prominent um, pro-abortion and anti-abortion people. Uh, Marquis is particularly interesting because he's a monist and an atheist, but somebody who makes arguments against uh, abortion as something ethical. Yeah. Um, they there's a and they're both very well known in the the abortion literature and in general Thule is Thule in particular is a major yeah. philosopher yeah 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 at Colorado Boulder for many years uh, yeah. they both agreed in this video that if you don't restrict access to abortion all the way up to birth you know in in all through the third trimester you're on the hook morally for infanticide. Yeah. And that that's going to have to be a serious conversation within the abortion debate. Right. Now, once we're talking about infanticide, what level of moral danger have we not reached? Right. And so, by the way, the same people who are trying to convince us that Kathleen Stock is dangerous, which, you know, or more peculiarly dangerous than any other horsefly on the flank of the state. Um, you know, uh, go on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're going to, we're careening into this debate about infanticide that will come up within right. the next few years. Are you going to be on the same side saying that's too dangerous? Yeah. 
And I know they're not because their ideology dictates. But I but I'm prepared to be consistent and say I will have that debate. The idea of infanticide being legally permissible and something that's institutionalized across the country makes me sick. Right. I, I mean, I think that would be a terrible moral failure of right. our society. But, but you don't not, think it. But you, but you, you think it has to be discussed for that very reason, right? Yes, and I'm prepared to win that debate on its merits. Right, right. Um, so that that's my one comment on that. So, Agnes Callard in the Stone, she argues um, against philosophers participating in petitions. Okay of which both the initial 12 piece in IHE and the APA um, signed piece can be viewed as a kind of petition, okay? Um, and her argument is very simple, is that philosophers should make, make their points by way of arguments. If the arguments are good, it doesn't matter who's saying it. And the only reason, therefore, to have signatures is if you're trying to persuade people on some basis other than the arguments, namely the fame and, and, and stature of the people uh, named, and um, um, I thought that this, the difference between Callard and, of course, the, the anonymous writers being that she seems to be very equal opportunity about it. I'm inclined to see from her piece that she would be opposed. She's as much opposed to the 33 as to the 12. So I, I didn't get a sense that that, that that she's disingenuous on this on this. Um, and it seemed to me that this is simply a variation on the argument against activism and philosophy or philosophers being activists. And what I wanted to know from you was whether you agree with that. And so whether your sort of response to the, to the Callard piece is going to be the same as to the others, or whether you think that there's enough that's different with the question of petitions specifically that, um, that um, um, some further comment is required. And I also then, once we're sort of through that, I want to talk a little bit about what is the sort of appropriate place for activism and philosophy. Because I have my own discomforts with certain kind of activist philosophy that maybe we could work through in, in closing. Yeah. Um, sorry, I just saw something in my hair, which I really hate. There we go. That's why I have this. So. Yeah, it works. <laughs> Otherwise, you get you get what's underneath. <laughs> so, one thing I wanted to say about the Agnes Callard piece before saying anything about it is it's the one piece we're discussing today, apart from my my own humble craftsmanship, uh, which I really like, and I think strikes me as really philosophically compelling, and sort of um, interesting. Um, and I haven't thought of a way to say this that doesn't sound left-handed when I don't mean it in any kind of left-handed way, but I thought it was sort of compellingly found her in medias race, kind of in the middle of thinking through an issue and thinking through an issue out loud and in public yeah. in a way that I think there's not a lot of incentives in academia today to get people to do that, but it's brave when people do it. And I actually so, like, I like where people do that. Yes. And I, I think I, philosophical output is often far too polished. I think a lot of it, I think we should be, I think we should have a lot more of this sort of working things out in public. Right. Um, as opposed to these sort of very scripted events that are philosophy papers, but yeah, go ahead. So I wanted to salute it for that, but um, there, it's, it's an interesting 
piece, um, there's sort of the narrow conversation, the conversation we've been having about professional ethics within academic philosophy and publishing. And then there's the much broader question about what kinds of persuasion um, are appropriate in a deliberative democracy. And obviously the two things are intimately connected. And there are times where it seems to me like she can't help but generalize to the larger. You can't really have the narrow conversation without making your views on the larger issue known. Yeah. That's probably true for all of us. Um, Which is an interesting insight in itself, that this is sort of a microcosm of a larger societal debate. Um, But there are some times where she when she's on the cusp of making a point, I feel she kind of reverts to the narrower conversation. Um, But to your, more directly to your question. um, So what is her view on activism? I would not say her view is quite an anti-activist stance. It is more only pro a very narrow type of activism. She is herself, after all, writing for the New York Times and making a positive argument and a positive argument of a moral and political nature. So she obviously countenances um, some kind of activism broadly construed, unless we take her as sort of obviously self-contradictory, which I'm not inclined to. Right. But the thing is, she only seems to support basically people in public making a, here's my premise, here's my conclusion, here are my reasons for supporting X. And that is um, the only way to be, as she puts it at one point, philosophical all the way down. Um, If we do anything that, uh, apart from that, we're sort of... um, what should we say? Adulterating seems too strong, but watering down the philosophy. And particularly what she objects to is um, anything that creates, and this is a quote, a pressure to believe that isn't grounded in explanatory force. Mm -hmm. A pressure to believe that isn't grounded in explanatory force. You know, you know, I'm tempted to respond to that with kind of a Wittgensteinian response, and that says, you know, what you what you're asking for is not possible. But I suspect that she's not making a general metaphilosophical point. She's she's talking about these more tangible, in the public sphere conversations. I think, right? I mean, she's not talking about basic beliefs in the philosophical sense, right? Because clearly, that's a kind of foundationalism that we know is false, right? I mean, that that's that if anything has been sort of like thoroughly just dis- discredited in philosophy the idea that reason can go all the way down is one of them right um, um, it would seem to me um, um, there aren't too many people who believe in indubitable foundations anymore or in uh, at least I wasn't under the impression that there were right um, but I don't think she's making that sort of point right she's not making she, she's really talking about when we're engaged in public discourse right we need to give arguments right right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
But it's not only we need to give arguments, it's we need to give only arguments. That's, yes, go on. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I think we get into trouble, and I think my sympathy starts to run out, my philosophical sympathy anyway. Because it seems to me that if we're only going to view arguments and that narrow sense of arguments of here's what I think you should think and why in prose, more or less, um, then it seems like a lot of things which are regular features of civic life uh, in all functioning democracies have to be sort of ruled as illegitimate. Yeah. Um, in a way that just seems implausible. It seems our idea of what democracy is and what democracy should be should be reasonably responsive to the real world and what actually proves to work. And when we're sort of that free, when our ideal of democracy is that free from how any democracy actually runs that's when I start to get nervous you, you, uh, what say what says Dan Kaufman no I, I listen I mean I like the idea I, I like the way you formulated that she's not just saying that when we engage in public discourse about matters of public concern we have to make arguments Mm-hmm. She's saying something stronger that we have to only make arguments and not do anything else, and that somehow the doing something else actually t- takes away from the arguments, right? right. Um, and um, in other words, she's arguing that public discourse should proceed in the manner of an academic paper, and um, that that seems clearly too strong because there's too many perfectly you know legitimate and necessary forms of public discourse that are then going to get ruled out. And I, I tend to agree with that. Um, and I only wonder whether she's intending to be that strong or whether she's, that's where the point at which, as you described it, she's returning back to the internal, in the, in, the, the intramural argument about philosophy saying, no, really, I just really don't like when philo- philosophical luminaries do this sort of thing. Well, right. that's where what she generate, what she objects to is again, a pressure to believe that isn't grounded in explanatory force. And she says that even something as relatively subtle as a whole bunch of people putting their names to something, which is hardly, I don't feel clubbed over the head by the fact that a whole bunch of people decided to put their names to something. So something that's that's sort of rhetorically easygoing um, is sort of... um, too forceful in a non-rational way, I don't see, you know, it seems like we'd have to strip out all kinds of other things. Right. uh, Which I'm not too inclined to strip out. Just like basic protesting um, rallies of any kind, I would have to assume are sort of non-deliberative or non-democratic in this way. Yeah. and that seems to me wrong. But, and I want to drag in the last piece, which is Justin Weinberg responded directly to the um, 
Agnes Callard piece. And yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm sorry that he did. Yes, you're right. And um, while I, I've talked about where my sympathies drift away from Callard, uh, reading Weinberg, they shift sort of back to her. Because if Callard's concern, South Callard's concern is um, we're not being rational enough, right? And we need to get rid of these other methods of persuasion, which are sort of non-rational. Weinberg then makes a response to this where he says, well, the reason we need all of these um, other kinds of methods of persuasion is because of practical urgency. You mean like we need to hurry things up sort of? Yes. The arguments take too long. Yes. (laughs) And, there's this sort of rhetorical tick that I don't think he was aware of in writing, but he constantly contrasts philosophical and practical. Um, so he talks about uh, when subjects veer a little, I'm sorry, I'm reading again. When subjects veer a little from practical professional matters into substantive philosophical issues. So this so to go from practical professional matters into substantive philosophical issues, you apparently have to veer, right? So he, he naturally takes it that the two things are going to be separate. Yeah. Um, and that you, if you're getting from one to the other, then you're somehow off course, veering. And he says... Uh, he he takes up Callard's line of we should be philosophical all the way down and he said as we head all the way down if we need to make a few decisions along the way dot 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 right so on the one hand we have Agnes Callard being philosophical all the way down and she means all the way down yeah on the other side we have Justin Weinberg making decisions on the way to philosophy yeah which seems to be making them pre, pre-philosophically, um, making them prior to kind of philosophical reflection. And I want to be somewhere in between these two right. people. And yeah. I, I, it, it does seem to me very important that uh, Rick Callard, that when you engage in any kind of rhetorical sort of method of persuasion, you should also have that argumentative backing to it. And that seems like uh, Weinberg, from what he says, does not seem committed that you need to have that kind of rational element to it uh, because you just need to make it on the way down to philosophy. Yeah. But it does also seem to me that the rash it's more legitimate than Callard would allow to supplement the argument with these other sorts of non-rational methods of persuasion. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, this is a, it's such tricky territory. That's why I don't think that 
like I said earlier, I don't think that you're going to be able to come up with a general principle, right? I mean, it's going to have to be a matter of judgment. I mean, you know, I think it does matter, right? Um, so let's take let's take somebody who's on the who's on the very much on the transactivist side and who is very rhetorical, um, and, you know, Rachel McKinnon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so she's involved in a, this. This is the, the the Charleston College of Charleston philosophy professor who. Um, who, among other things, you know, went after Martina Navratilova as a transphobe and 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 tried to and got her actually got one of her sponsorships uh, pulled. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so you know, McKinnon is engaged in a in an argument in the public sphere about how people should be treated within various frames of reference and context, right? And she makes whatever argument she makes. And I, now, I think it's relevant that she personally behaves like a horrible human being while she's doing this, right? That to me, that is somewhat discrediting because she is, in a sense, saying one thing about, she's saying something about how people should treat each other and how people should behave in these various frames of reference. But she's also exhibiting behavior, right? And I don't see how the two come apart, right? On the other hand, though, I can think of an awful lot of very unpleasant people mm-hmm. who even, even, even while their presentation, their unpleasantness is communicated, mm-hmm. nonetheless would want to say, yeah, you've you got to give credit to them. I mean, the arguments are damn good, right? I mean, in other words, I think there's a relationship, but I don't think you can sort of draw a hard line or come up with a principle that'll, that'll distinguish when and where. I, I, I am of the impression that there is a level of awesomeness of arguments that if Rachel McKinnon were making them might partly mitigate. In other words, her awful, her personal awfulness partly has the impact it does is because the arguments are shit, right? (laughs) Um, Now, how much better the arguments have to be before we should dismiss the personal awfulness as kind of just a sort of idiosyncrasy? I'm not sure, and I don't really think could be determined in advance. So, how do you? What do you think about this? I mean, it seems relevant, but you couldn't really give a theory of when it is and when it isn't, and when it ceases to be, and when it starts to be, right? Well, there, I'd say there's a distinction to be made between people who were sort of personally offered awful, but it's not directly relevant to their philosophizing. Hmm. Um, they're like, there's one, I'm not going to name any names, but I've heard stories firsthand from about a very famous philosopher of language um, that he was just a jerk and an awful person, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he was writing about philosophy of language and, you know, there's no direct relevance to him being mean to his graduate students and um, you know uh, what's the relationship between meanings of words what 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 does become more interesting is when the people are seeming people are behaving. Un, in ways that seem to me unethical and in ways that are warranted by their own worldview. Mm, that's interesting. 
and the worldview that they're selling and making arguments for. Right. There's something I've been trying to articulate recently um, among a lot of these sort of people who are very concerned with social justice. Um, and the best formulation I've had come across so far is there's a neglect of the ordinary virtues mm. that a lot of what they do is um, the niceties, as we might call them, right? I mean, this. <laughs> well, I, I want to word a little more robust than niceties because, I mean, they like they permit things when it's sort of congruent with their ideology and omit things or forbid things when they're inconsistent with their ideology without a lot of thought to what, what is conducive and erosive to virtue. Um, So if you did something that you think was good for social justice, you're allowed to brag and go on Twitter or Facebook or whatever and brag and preen yourself up and people will come swooping in and praising you and talking about what a great thing you just did and you're such a badass and everyone's so proud of you without thinking about self-conceit is generally considered a vice. Yeah. And I look and I mean, these people are my political opponents in many ways, but I look at them and what they surround themselves with. And I just keep thinking, this is really bad for you. Yeah. And it makes me, Oh God, you can't say, you know, I, I think though, but you nailed it a minute ago. Um, you didn't. I said niceties. What was the phrase you used? Ordinary virtues. I said the ordinary virtues. I think that this. Look, I want to say that the reason these people are doing this is that the reason these people are behaving this way is because they really, they really, um, they they really feel it. Um, but I'm actually think starting to think that the whole thing is very manipulative, right? I mean, that they actually the people are much worse than I thought, and that, and I'll tell you why. Because it seems to me that it's in order to suspend the necessity of the ordinary virtues that one constantly invokes the scenario as being one of an emergency, right? This is why you keep throwing out, you know, well, you know, if you keep doing this, these people are going to commit suicide, right? This is why you keep weaponizing suicides. You keep, you know trying to convince everyone that middle-aged lesbian professors are these terrible threat to people. In other words, look, it's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, how do you suspend the normal, ordinary liberties, courtesies, prerogatives, et cetera, in a society? You declare martial law. Now, when do you do that? You do that when there's an invasion, right? <laughs> right? right? I mean, you do. And so if you want to, if you want to control that way, where there's no invasion, you have to characterize there as being one, right? And it seems to me that that the the, the constant hyper hyperbole, the constant emergency language, the constant invoking of suicide, the the anonymous trans philosopher who made this public manifesto, I have to leave philosophy because I'm unsafe if I go to a conference and Kathleen Stock is walking around there, right? Rachel McKinnon, you know, people are going to kill themselves, people are going to die, and all this. That's a that's a way to 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 make to justify oneself, acting like a fucking shit, right? 
Um, that that and and and, I, and and it's it's very manipulative, right? I mean, it really. Um, 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 uh, I, I'm more and more convinced that this is a tactic. This is not innocent. This is not that these people are really so convinced that they're in jeopardy that they just can't control themselves and they just let loose and all of that. This strikes me as very premeditated. Um, um, premeditated. Um, so, sort of like, sort of like somebody who who gins up a threat to declare martial law because he wants to get rid of these pesky newspapers asking him questions, right? Um, um, it's sort of like the Al Haig version of philosophy, <laughs> sort of like Al Haig doing philosophy, right? I mean, you, you know, well, you know, I'm going to take over now because, yeah, and, and I can do whatever I want. I, I just, I feel like it doesn't strike me as spontaneous and innocent bad behavior. Right? Well, it, I mean, I'm a, a student of Nietzsche, to some extent a student of Freud, um, there are all kinds of things between innocence and conscious and premeditation. Yeah. <laughs> Fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Um, are, are they innocent is a word. I, now I take your point and I agree with your point that there is a sort of function to the arguments that they make the emer- the constant emergency status is a, there's right. a function to it, but you don't know that it's premeditated consciously premeditated. Do you really think that people as smart as, as Sally Haslinger really think that someone's going to die if they see Kathleen stock at a conference? The smarter you get, the more separate books you can keep. Oh, you mean, com- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. You do, you really think that these people really think, Rebecca Kugler really thinks that some trans philosopher is going to kill herself if she sees Kathleen Stock at a conference. Well, that even, that's a little, I think, farther than even they would go, but that, that they think that these things contribute to a system uh, what was the phrase? See, that's already Weasley. What the hell does that mean? I mean, that's that's well, Weasley already. Pretty long stories on what they mean by that. Um, and that, that gets back to my old point about um, autonomy of the individual goes missing in a lot of these stories. And we're all um, sort of ciphers where we just uh, sort of take in the structures and cultural forces around us. And then that just kind of determines our behavior. Yeah. Uh, and we're helpless to sort of mediate that in any real way. Yeah. Um, and then if you take that worldview, the world does look like a dangerous place because any idea or, um, Trigger, like the, the whole idea of trigger warnings or being triggered, which has now been so parodied that it's kind of gone out of vogue. And has also, by the way, been empirically disconfirmed. I mean, there's not a major study yet that shows that actually the trigger warnings don't do any good at all. Um, right. Why that metaphor, right? Like a trigger is something where just a little bit of pressure, it's deliberately designed so that if you put just a little bit of pressure on it, bang, something instantaneously happens. Yeah. And there's a big combustive reaction to that. And if you think that you're like that, your interior states are like that, where something comes and puts a little 
pressure on you, bang, you can have this just sort of uh, inevitably follows that you have this strong internal event that's negative, then the world's a very difficult place to navigate. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, this is a sort of a direct a, a direction I'm always reluctant to go in. And I mean, it's something I, I, you know, you can't rule out. But, you know, anecdotally and also statistically, we know that amongst our students, the, the, the rates of mental illness are just through the roof. And I'm getting the impression just anecdotally, even from just stuff I'm reading in places like the APA blog, et cetera, that the ranks, especially of the younger philosophy professors, are filled with people with all sorts of uh, mental illness issues. And you start to wonder, it's like, gosh, you know, is this a tactic or is it just that the demographics of philosophy professors are changing to, to reflect, as the, the younger cohorts come up, changing to reflect what's happening generally across the to society, which is rising rates of anxiety and depression and other things. To which, you know, then then you start wondering, okay, maybe it's neither premeditated nor innocent, but kind of a kind of an ill reaction, right? But I'm I'm very hesitant mm-hmm. to sort of write off these people. You know, I, I almost I still kind of respect them too much to sort of say, okay, well, all right, you're clearly you're clearly you're clearly in the in the belonging in a, in in, a, in the sort of quote unquote padded room set, and I'm not even going to talk to you at all, right? I'm sort of very reluctant to do that, but I mean, I guess it's it's possible that what we're seeing now is is simply the effect of the changing demographics and the rising mental illness statistics that we're beginning to see across the board. I don't know if you have a view about this. Well, I don't. I don't tend to accept that kind of explanation. Partly, the some of the biggest troublemakers, the people who showed up on the APA letter the people who have consistently sort of pushed this ideology are more your age than mine. Yeah, our older, our older members. Although I'm of the inclination that the sort of woke set is, is largely younger, right? I mean, it's not entirely younger, but many of the people on that list are sort of early that, millennials, it seems, right? Uh, I think that has more to do with them being the students of the older people. Yeah, and, fair enough. Fair enough. And like I said, I'm very reluctant. I'm very uninclined to go in that, that direction. Um, last thing. So this is, let's, in closing, let's forget about these people for now. And let's just talk about what we think about activism and philosophy. Okay. Um, um, so one place that I think it's really not, not on is in one's teaching. Absolutely. Um, um, if I'm teaching an applied ethics course and I'm doing the abortion issue, I damn well better not be teaching students in such a way that I'm trying to get them to agree with what I think is the correct answer on the abortion question. And so if I'm going to teach Judith Darvis Thompson, I'm damn well going to find an essay arguing the opposite position that's just as strong. Um, And that's exactly what I do. And I think it's unethical to do otherwise. That is not our job. Our job is not to convince our students to agree with us, right? I'm I'm less certain what I th- how I feel about academic research. Now you clearly because of what you've said you you reject this notion that somehow something having an activist end an intellectual endeavor having an activist end discredits it. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm less sure 
I agree with all the cases you gave. Obviously, Bentham is not discredited by the fact that he was trying to achieve prison reform. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can help me with where from the point on teaching where you and I both agree and the place where you are at this other side about that saying something is activist does not discredit intellectually. Where is the point where it switches over? Right. Yeah. And, and uh, what sort of, is there any research that's active that has activist ends that you would object to? I guess. Yeah. Um, probably. Um, well, I say that. Isn't philosophy supposed to be critical all the time? I mean, in other words, if you if you really convinced that this is the right thing, that's exactly the thing you should be examining critically the most, right? I mean, because right. One, philosophers of all people should be should be wary of self deception and and motivated reasoning and also stuff like that. So, how can you ever be confident that your activist ends for your intellectual endeavors, i.e., your research? Don't don't compromise the critical dimension of what you're doing. Yeah. So one note on teaching, I think, and I think you think as well, that it's fair for people in teaching. People have different approaches to teaching, uh, many of which work. Um, but it's fair to say, by the way, I think this argument's unanswerable. And in my writings about this subject, yeah. Um, I, take I tell the students what I think up front because I don't want them guessing. Right. But I'm scrupulous in the material I present right. and how I present it um, right. um, to not bias the presentation one way or the other. And I, one thing that I think we'll, again, agree is that you definitely can't do is if a kid um, put, you know, gives you their final paper and it's arguing against your position, the position that you really hold, and I've told the class you really hold, like that's not, maybe it's an A paper, even though it's arguing against the position you think is right. And if you're not approaching it that way. Absolutely. And I think there is this serious problem. And that's sort of, if that's the way you're teaching, then deans should come in, deans or department heads or whoever should come in and make trouble with you because what you're doing is no longer congruent with the purpose of a university. Right. You're indoctrinating. You're not teaching. Right. I mean, you're, yeah. So yeah, I have no tolerance for that. Um, As for um, How does one have an activist end in one's research without compromising the critical dimension that all philosophy is supposed to have? I guess is what I'm asking you. By being open to criticism of that basic uh, end. So, I mean, um, I gave the example of uh, when I was at a real real philosophy conference as a student, um, Thomas Pogge was um, in town in Atlanta. um, And he was also, everyone knew, also being involved in some charity work while he was in town. So he was absent from some of the sessions. And it seemed to me people didn't generally have a problem with that. Right. Um, And it's not the sort of thing people generally have problems with. Um, 
where I think it would be a problem is if Thomas Pogge, as to my knowledge, he's never done, got up and said, um, everyone who says that global poverty is not a moral catastrophe is um, a Nazi. Nothing harm to the global. Well, yeah. Well, well, if he said they're causing harm to the global poor and they're hurting the activism movement in order to alleviate the state of the global poor, um, then then I would have a problem with what he's saying. So just to be clear, because Pogi's a real person, that's entirely fictive and I've made it up. Yeah. Um, I don't wish to attribute those words to him or to anyone. And he's had other problems. He's been, a, you know, a, a kid, uh, which has no bearing on, the, on what you're yeah. talking about. Cause you mentioned him in the piece and I thought immediately, Oh, everybody's now going to jump on. Oh, isn't that the guy who was accused of sexual harassment? You can invent a fictional guy and tell the same story with it. You, you were using it for right. a particular purpose. Yeah. Put in Peter Schoen, put in Peter Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so if you're, so Pogi and these other people have a real activist commitment to alleviating global poverty, fine, I think. But if they start using that commitment to try to suppress any speech which seems to have the effect of um, inhibiting sort of his preferred political activism, that's when I start to have a problem. So if he said at some point, Bernard Williams, you have to shut up, you're hurting the global poor with all these arguments about why we don't have to be necessarily all that concerned as I think we should be. So that would be... Right. uh, So so let's be very... Because I want to, I'm talking now about the actual research. Okay, mm-hmm. so if Pogi in an article, in a peer-reviewed article right. in a scholarly journal, instead of engaging with the arguments of Williams, said, right. "Well, we don't need to engage with his arguments because um, he clearly hates the poor and, and is trying to harm them, and and by by even by rehearsing his arguments, we are harming them." Um, it's not quite authentic, Dan, because they generally say they don't care about motives. So he would say, whatever his motives, Bernard Williams is doing damage to the global yeah, right. power. Right. Right. Okay. Right. So in other words, it sounds to me like what you're saying is, look, um, there's nothing wrong with activist ends with respect to research. The way, to, the way that philosophy ensures, however, that those active ends don't undermine the critical, uh, the, the essentially critical nature of the philosophical enterprise is through its standards and conventions, right? So, for example, there is an expectation that one is going to consider the objections of one's opponents, right? It, that's an expectation. You will get a, re, a paper rejected right? if you don't adequately consider the objections that have been stated to your view, regardless of who, who made them, right, um, and what you think of the people who made them. And so um, you could argue that, Philosophy protects itself, protects its critical function from sort of activism creep um, by virtue of its conventions and standards, that that's to a certain degree why they're there, right? Yeah, and for instance, that um, a reviewer or an editor at a scholarly journal, if they are receiving a paper 
that's uh, proposing that they suppress other kinds of views, I think they should reject that or reject the passage or reject the paper as improper as not comporting with the standards of the profession. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I, you know, my worry, however, I'm wondering whether this, this new round and you saw, you know, with, with Hypatia mm-hmm. and now with all of these people um, who are working in these areas, I'm wondering if these standards are being eroded in the journals or at least in some of the journals, which strikes me as very dangerous. Um, well, I mean, that's made very clear by the daily news stuff that we've already talked about. Yeah. Um, where his kind of, Weinberg has had this sort of Solomonic attitude, the kind of, uh, and these kind of people frustrate me the most. Um, the people who are like, maybe de omnibus dubitandum, or maybe we should suppress some things that are, uh, it's kind of dangerous to say certain things. So let's split the baby and come in somewhere uh, in the middle. Yeah. It has criticize call-out culture's most excessive things, but he's also been kind of mush-mouthed about others. And this is where I have to say, no, this is a fundamental thing, and it's rational and reasonable for us to take a firm line here. And I can't split the baby on this. This is too fundamental. Uh, Certainly, people in that woke triangle are calling upon journals to abandon these standards. Um, it was explicit in the anonymous trans philosophers manifesto. I'm leaving the profession. Um, at the end, there was a list of sort of demands. And one of them was that journal editors should know platform mm-hmm. people making gender critical arguments. And so, you know, um, there's certainly, and, and I would argue that the letter from the 33 mm-hmm. flirts with that sort of idea by sort of seeking to delimit what is sort of considered acceptable inquiry to include arguments that create negative subjective feeling on the part of some person who's involved, who's, who, who is, who is of the sort being discussed. Right. right. Uh, um, I see in there also a call for journals to sort of at least weaken these very uh, important standards and when you've got people like Sally Hassinger of that stature signing it, it worries me a lot, right? I mean, I mean, if the journals in any, in any significant number abandon these standards, then I think the discipline as a whole will be truly compromised in a way that I'm not sure it will survive, right? I mean, and we've, I think this has already happened in other disciplines, right? Yeah. Um, I, 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 and we see different articles talking about that having happened in other disciplines, um, what was the name of that woman at NYU who got cut up in the, it was the great reverse me too. The Israeli woman, um, Roni, is it Ronit? Or, I, I forget. Ronell, Ronell. The last name is Ronell. I don't remember the first name. Yeah, <laughs> it was found, she, she was a, sort of a, 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 a continental style Derridaian theorist. Yeah. Who it turned out was like, grotesquely sexually harassing a male graduate student for like years. Avital Ronell, that was her name. Yeah. Avital. Avital is what she goes by. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There was in, there was a response piece to that by somebody who had 
been a non-deconstructionist in, in literary theory. And he talked about how the deconstructionists build this closed circle where they form a little community, they get hold of a journal, they get hold of certain academic departments, and then they just, you know, as far as the outward basic processes of uh, academic research, people being peer-reviewed, yeah. um, people publishing in journals that are owned by Wiley Blackwell or whatever, um, it's all on the up and up. But intellectually, it's just this kind of, uh, it's it's lost its relationship to the de omnibus dubitandum and yeah. all you know a real critical collision between yeah. differing ideas and I don't see a lot of that in philosophy now. I'm concerned about it. Hypatia resisted that role and then died. Yeah, and that's not good. And yeah. I kind of miss Hypatia in some ways. Um, because it did publish a lot of good papers and uh, it was resisting that role in trying to have the conversation uh, on substantive philosophical issues between Justin Weinberg tribe on one side and kind of our tribe on the other side and trying to keep things together as much as possible. And um, yeah, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I am concerned about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, David, this was uh, really interesting, important, um, not just for philosophy, but I think that that you were you very successfully showed the way that this is important for sort of public discourse more generally, um, um, and how this is spilling out from the intramural to the to the to the to the societal. And um, uh, we're going to link to all the stuff we talked about, to David's piece, to all these pieces we mentioned, and um, and uh, thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to the to the next time we uh, get together here. Yes, yes, indeed. All right, man. Take care. Ciao. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.